and welcome to Get Lost in Great Film, a new podcast series from View Entertainment. I'm James King. Now, one of the things I love about cinema is its ability to transport you to hours of uninterrupted bliss, escaping to another world and losing yourself in truly cinematic moments. We've all had them. Those iconic scenes at the cinema, lights down, screens so big you feel like you're there. Moments like Tony Stark proclaiming, I am Iron Man, Meryl Streep belting out the winner takes it all, or the pupils of Hogwarts saying their final goodbye to Dumbledore. And that's what we'll be exploring in this series. Each week we'll be focusing on a different genre of film, from love to comedy, action to adventure, and drama to soundtracks. And we'll be joined by stars from either side of the screen to discuss their favourite five scenes. What it is about movies that captivates them and gets them lost in great film. And today we're getting lost in love stories with national treasure, writer, director, Richard Curtis. Richard Curtis, lovely to speak to you. It's absolutely lovely to talk to you as well. Welcome to the Get Lost in Great Film podcast. And today we're talking all about love in films. In, in all its many forms, I think a lot of, certainly me, I just thought of romantic love. And then I saw the list that you sent, Richard. And of course, there are so many different types of love in movies. And we hope to cover some of those over the next half an hour, 40 minutes or so. But I thought I would begin by possibly butchering a beautiful piece of your dialogue oh. from uh, appropriately enough love actually because it seems to me to get to the heart of what that film's about but also what today's episode is about and it's spoken right at the start of the film by Hugh Grant and he says if you look for it I've got a sneaky feeling you'll find that love actually is all around what do you remember about writing those opening lines of that film Richard I remember Hugh hating doing that um it's quite a sort of hardcore piece of emotional commitment just in a studio with a bloke pushing a button uh, <laughs> and he did find it hard and condemned himself i i'm just trying to remember whether or not i wrote that right at the beginning or right at the end of the whole uh, caper uh, i've always wanted to start all my films with the voiceover to try and, you know, lay out the subject matter in hand. And that was, at last, the one time in which I managed to do it. But I don't remember the writing of it. I just remember the complaining about it. <laughs> but did you see Love and Actually written down next to each other and think that would make a great title? Or did you have the title already? Well, I think I literally came across it because I was so involved in the track Love is All Around from Four Weddings. Do you remember that that was the song that we chose for that? And so I think when I was talking about the movie, I wanted to say that love actually was all around. And then I think I use the word actually a lot in real life, try and convince people that I'm more right than I actually am. <laughs> there we go, you see. I remember when I saw it at the cinema, because of the, the wet, 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 Four Weddings and Your Funeral cheeky nod in that line it got a round of applause oh is that right absolutely yeah it's so odd one of the things about films which is a bit sad is that your interaction with the public is so slight i was talking to a pop 
singer the other day, you know, who said, every year I go out on the road and 30,000 people sing along to songs of mine that they like. And I'm really confirmed that they like them and know them. But you, you get, you know, three screenings where you're terrified, (laughs) a premiere, and that's it. And in fact, you never really after that, I mean, people will come up to you and say, I like that film, but you never have any experience of an audience experiencing your film. Again, it's kind of odd like that. More like writing books, strangely, than like being a musician. And talking about love today, as that's our our topic on the podcast today, I mean, it really is driving almost every film, isn't it? Almost every story in one way or another. It's certainly the thing that's never going, it's probably never in fashion, but it's also never going to go out of fashion because it's at the heart of everything we do and all the stories we tell. Well, it's certainly one of, one of the big subjects. I mean, I, I, and I was about to say there's not much in Fast and Furious. And then, of course, I remember Fast and Furious is all about love and family and everything like that, uh, not really about action. But, you know, often when people sort of criticise the sentimentality of my movies, I try and point out how love dominates so much, particularly of young people's lives way of violence which is one of the other big subjects in the movies um is big in the world but nothing like as omnipresent uh you know the thing about love is it is one of the biggest emotions that all of us encounter as you say every day in fact i don't think it's got enough of a percentage in terms of cinematic output as it were relevant to how much it's there in the world i think serial killers have had rather too much too many percentage points since there's only been about eight of them. <laughs> You've chosen some films for us on the topic of love. And the first one we're going to look at today came out in 2009. Actually, the opening line is, this is a story of boy meets girl, but you should know up front, this is not a love story. Um, ah. I, I, I guess what it means more is that it's not a formulaic love story. It's not a cliched love story. And it was described by one critic as the best rom-com since Love Actually. We're ah. talking about 500 Days of Summer. So uh, tell us why you chose this one, Richard. Oh, look, I absolutely love this film. I think that, you know... At the nub of it, because I've just been thinking about talking to you, is why do you write these things and why are they pleasurable? And one of them is just to get a real feeling of what these moments of love in our lives are like. You know, horror movies actually produce fear. You know, you actually jump. And the, I think the movies about love that I most like are not ones with sort of too much tropes and sentiment. It's the ones where I just get coming up inside me that sense of, oh, that was what it was really like. That was, that's a feeling I know. It's like re-meeting an old friend. It's like hearing a piece of music that gave you great delight. And so even though... 500 Days of Summer is a wonderful, tricksy, funny, glamorous, quirky movie. It's also, at the heart of it, really got that thing of when a person you've fallen in love with does not love you as much 
as you love them. And when you really realise, oh, this isn't going to work out and there's a central mystery at the middle of their character which I'm never going to unlock. So, you know, there are two things I like about the film. One thing, I think it's got that rather profound, deep revelation and memory of what love is like. And then it's just full of the most brilliant scenes. It's got this amazing scene in it. You remember where uh, he goes to a party at her house and they split the screen and you see what he thought was going to happen at the party and then what actually does happen at the party. That's an amazing scene. And then there's a beautiful music scene where for the first time he thinks she's going to go out with him and he walks through the park and there's a Hall of Notes song and everybody in the park <laughs> begins to dance and little animated birds come down. So um, it reminds me of Annie Hall in some ways, which was also full of tricks. But basically... It's a really entertaining thing. Zoe Deschanel is so fantastic. Um, you know, I've always been obsessed by her as an actress. But it does get to the nub of things. It gets to the nub of disappointment. And then it gets to the nub of how you get over disappointment. Realise she wasn't right. It was described as a pop song in movie form. Um, because it goes through all those emotions. I guess the perfect pop song can go through all those emotions in three and a half minutes or so, but um, at the same time, and music is clearly very important to the film as well, isn't it? Yeah, and also, of course, it's got this amazingly beautiful time structure where it just jumps around to anywhere within the story. You go from day one to day 237 to day 50. It's, it's, it's It's a masterpiece. I remember being very disappointed when I heard that the director's next movie was Spider-Man, I thought, oh, God, we've lost him. Because there aren't that many people around who do this well. And um, I wish that him and Scott had made more of those type of films. Um, We won't give away the ending in case people haven't seen it. But one thing I really loved about this film is that there is a difference between uh, the right ending that feels right and perhaps the more manufactured so-called happy ending and actually in several of your choices that you sent over we see that as well in lost in translation is another one i'm wondering about getting the right ending for a film in a romantic film uh whether the couple are going to end up together or whether they're not going to end up together because in some respects some films they don't they shouldn't get together but there might be people pressurizing the filmmakers to get them together because that's the kind of stereotype and perhaps some audiences want that some audiences want a more authentic thing as well so has there ever been that situation with you have you thought that the film should end one way but other people have said it should end the other way yeah and by the way on this subject Danny Boyle says this very funny thing he says there are only two things that matter in a movie the beginning and the end and the beginning not so much (laughs) Um, literally it's all about the end um i think the only time i experienced as it were questions around that was in fact in four weddings where i just remember emma who was script editing with me at the time we did talk a certain amount about fiona about whether or not the Kristen scott thomas person was the right choice you know i think that whether you know somehow Hugh should have realised that it had been in front of him all the time and that Andy McDowell was a luxury. So there was a bit of talk about that. I don't think I've ever had a studio, as it were, arguing with me about it. 
I also wrote a completely different end to Notting Hill. Notting Hill was originally a film about Julia goes away and then he met a girl in Notting Hill who worked in a record store and then she came back and it was going to be about a choice between two women rather than... And I think you can see in the movie it's a bit flawed that nothing much happens when Julia goes away. So that was the rewrite. But in the end, I couldn't bear having to choose between two characters who I'd built up, both of whom I loved. So I turned the record store girl into his sister, really. Your second film also fits into that category, I think, of... uh... It's the right ending, but for some people, perhaps it's the wrong ending. And we're talking about Brief Encounter. So going back to the 1940s here, 1945, tell us why you chose this film. Well, isn't it funny? I mean, how do films become masterpieces? This film is perfect in its every detail. And it absolutely is about love not working out. We had a screening of it up here in my village where there's this absolutely gorgeous I think it's one of the smallest cinemas in Britain in a town called Southwold and we're friends with Celia Johnson's daughter oh wow she was coming up so we rented the cinema and screened Brief Encounter as my favorite film and Lucy read out a letter from her mum that she'd written during the making of the film uh, which was very sweet indeed and said one of the reasons that she'd Um, said yes to doing the film was that not only did she have most of the lines but she also had a voiceover all the way through the film so even when she wasn't talking you couldn't get away from her look it's you, you sometimes you land on a masterpiece and this was a film which took its time and all the complexity of its time all the sort of moral confusion all the absolute lack of people expressing how they feel and perfectly encapsulated it into a film and then did have the courage to end badly. It's the other platform, isn't it? You have to run. Don't bother about me. It might not do for a few minutes. Can I see you again? Yes, of course. Perhaps we'll come out to catch with one Sunday. It's rather far, I know, but we should be delighted. Please, please. What is it? Next Thursday, the same time. So is it where the times won? No, I couldn't possibly. Please. Well, I think it's the greatest film about love, but it is about the sorrow of it. Run. I stood there. I watched his train draw out of the station. I stared after it until its tail light had vanished into the darkness. It's often talked about in terms of it being quintessentially English. I guess a lot of that is to do with its restraint and and the the courtesy, the decency. I think they use the word decent quite a lot in the film, uh, the decency of the characters. Um, Although actually, the last time I watched it, I was worried that I didn't trust Trevor Howard as much as oh, really? I had. Yeah, watch it again. I'm slightly worried he's trying it on. But oh, really? Go. Sorry, go on with your question. No, well, I was just thinking about reviews I've read of your films, and again, perhaps Notting Hill being the most obvious choice, is where people have written about the Englishness and the emotional reserve of your characters. So clearly there's elements of Brief Encounter or you've been inspired by it in some way in your writing, would you say that? I think partly because I've got some English qualities, even though I'm not English, weirdly. I, my parents are both Australian. But I think that it's good to sometimes be honest about what our problems are. One of the things when I was writing The Vicar of Dibley is she was very nice, the Dawn character. <laughs> 
And it suddenly realized, it occurred to me that a lot of great English sitcoms are about very angry people. One foot in the grave and obviously faulty towers and many of the memorable characters are people who get cross all the time. And the English problem is being too nice, really. What happens if you're too nice, if you're too gentle, if you're too polite, if you don't say what you mean? Uh, I mean, I think this is changing a bit, by the way. I, I hope generationally this shifts. But I think, therefore, being English, that will be one of the problems with love. When do you get round to saying it? How do you express it? How do you get over the embarrassment of it? How do you get over your lack of self-confidence? So maybe there is. I've never thought I'm going to leave this much happier now. I think that there's a direct line from Brief Encounter to my colourful nonsense. Well, of course, also the um, the way that the characters meet in Brief Encounter, I guess it wasn't called a meet cute at that point, but um, it one. certainly is perhaps one of the most famous of all time with Laura getting a piece of grit in her eye and Alec the Doctor helping her out. And again, you know, you look at the way that Hugh and Julia bump into each other in Notting Hill, you have to think of a clever and sweet way of your two main characters meeting for the first time, don't you? Well, I don't know. It's funny you say that because I've never read a book about writing films and I try not to analyse what I do because I think that what I would say about films about love in general is they seem to have been written by people who are obsessed by the subject and therefore they've written quite a lot of them. You know, it's not generally a genre that people dip in and out of and say, well, I'll knock off one of those. So <laughs> I kind of have tried in life not to think there are rules, not to say exactly what you said. Oh, well, what's the cutest way these two can meet? But clearly there's some truth in the rules because otherwise they wouldn't happen so often and you wouldn't fall on them because... Four Weddings and a Funeral, I did not know was a romantic comedy. I thought it was a sort of autobiographical film with love at the centre of it. So I was thinking about Gregory's Girl and Breaking Away um, and movies like that, that where somebody had sort of taken a diner, a little bit of that, Rita Sue and Bob too. You know, I was thinking about those films. And yet, apparently... Now, when people teach how you're meant to structure a romantic comedy, Four Weddings is almost like the mathematical <laughs> proof of it. So strangely, there must be some truth in those, in those rules if you do find yourself moving towards them such a lot. But I did once think of doing a series of 10-minute online films, which were going to be called Meet Cute. It was going to be about a man <laughs> called John Cute. And every single time he would meet a new girl in a cute way and say, hello, I'm John Cute. But there we go. <laughs> You've reminded me of Rita Sue and Bob too as well. If we do an episode on sex, then I think that's got to be uh, on somebody's list because that's well, an absolute well, That's literally got the best final shot in the world, doesn't it? Doesn't he leap on the bed with yeah. both of them and it freezes when yeah. he's in mid-air? And then it freeze frames. Yeah, yeah. yeah. just brilliant. Um, so Brief Encounters obviously set in the home counties, which I think is 
very much part of the characters. You know, they're not metropolitan types. They're um, reserved, as we've said, reserved people living in small town England. Do you think looking at some of your films, I mean, yesterday, for example, let's talk about that because we are both from Suffolk. That seems to me to be a film about being in love with Suffolk as much as anywhere else. And Notting Hill, clearly a film about being in, in love with that location. You wrote them because you know about those locations, but also there's a love there for those locations as well. Yeah, look, I think, yeah, that is so true. And, you know, my movie career started with me going to America, writing a movie set in Boston, realising I couldn't do it because I didn't know what people had in their fridges in Boston, coming home, getting sued in perpetuity by MGM, um, and saying to my girlfriend, I'm never going to write a film that isn't set in the street in which I live. And then the first film I wrote was called Camden Town Boy, even though we changed its title to The Tall Guy. And then I wrote Notting Hill, as it were, and you're right. Yesterday could have been called, you know, Great Yarmouth or Woodbridge or something like that. <laughs> um, I think that, that what, what, one of the things for me is knowing something about the places and the things that you're writing about. I mean, that's not a rule for many. The person who writes Star Wars doesn't know that planet as well as I know Southworld. But certainly it makes me feel deeply comfortable to know that I really know the streets I'm writing about. And in many cases, you know, love the places I'm writing about too. Is that where you find inspiration then in in the place where you're living? Well, I think it's just because I know the life I'm living. It takes less imagining when you think, well, how would I, you know, in Notting Hill, he wanders through the market for a year. And I've wandered wandered through that market for 15 years. So in a way, it's writing what you know, just like, didn't Manet paint his daffodil pool a thousand times? It's a little bit like that. Um, So I'm sure lots of people have had a little weep watching Brief Encounter. And your third film is another weepy and a different kind of love. This is from 2001. It won the best picture at the Cannes Film Festival in that year. An Italian film. This is The Sun's Room. Tell us more about that, Richard. Gosh, yes. I mean, this is such a strange thing. I remember there's a film called Lilia Forever. Do you know that film? I do, yeah. And I remember reading a review which said, the first time I saw this film, I thought it was a great, masterpiece I went back and checked and it was greater than I thought I've just watched it for the third time and I still can't recommend it (laughs) because (laughs) it's it's so that that movie is so sad and the sun's room I think is you know in my top five movies of all time and yet I'm very wary of saying to people you should watch this film because it is such a perfect expression of grief and sorrow. I particularly worry about parents watching it. But, you know, there is no greater love in my life than the love I was given by my parents and the love I feel for my children. And that was, I I suddenly realised that when writing Love Actually, that, you know, brothers and sisters and, you know, Fathers and sons, these are huge things too, and of the same value. And The Sun's Room is just this astonishingly simple, realistic film about a 15-year-old boy dying in an accident. And half, I think probably 20 minutes is before he dies, and 
an hour and 20 years after. And in terms of that thing that I was saying about making you feel love, not just observe it, but feel it. I've never seen something that makes me tangle with the prospect of sorrow and the reality of it and the way time passes when you're in the middle of it, like this film. I've got no idea how the magic was achieved. The guy who made it was a comedy writer, really. Um, but, wow, if you want an intense experience of what love lost feels like, this is, this is the one. Ma cos'è questa cazzata? Prima lei mi fa entrare nella trappola, le racconta tutto di me, poi mi dice di salute e me ne vado. Vaffanculo! Vaffanculo! Io sto male, porca puttana, io sto male, sto sempre peggio! Testa di cazzo stronzo, tu mi hai fregato, ma io te la faccio pagare! Te la faccio pagare! And I guess out of uh, your films, the one that gets closest, I would suggest, is About Time with that relationship between Bill Nye and Donald Gleeson, the father-son relationship in that, which also ends in, in sadness, in grief. Yeah, I mean, both my parents had died in the years before I wrote that film. It's, I, I, I'm really fond of About Time. The problem is, in the middle of a conversation about the syndrome, I suddenly think of the word Trixie. Um, <laughs> so, because, you know, this is so, you know, I was just thinking, what happened in about time? And then I remembered, oh, yeah, when, when Bill dies, we use that um, Nick Cave song, which is such an amazing song, and that carries the sort of weight. Um, and there's, right until the very end, there's no songs in In the Sun's Room, but I sometimes wish I'd flicked off sort of first love quicker and got on to marriage and children and family a bit sooner in my career. But yeah, the about time was my effort to talk about my mum and my dad and, and more about family, more about being married, the sort of romantic part of that ends, you know, exactly at half time. And then the rest of it's about mums and dads and children and husbands and wives. But I would, I would recommend to people that if you want to see a great, mature, accessible, astonishing thing to prepare you for sorrow, um, the sun's room's the one. Yeah, Nanny Moretti is the writer, director, producer, actor... Yeah. Um, well recommended. Talking about music cues, um, two uh, nineteen ninety seven. This one, Jerry Maguire. I think ah. it features another another of your favourite music cues, and um, a film just packed so full of lines that everyone remembers. Oh yeah. I mean, look, I I love this film. I tracked down Cameron Crowe as a human and tried to tried to take him out to as many lunches as I could after this, um, after seeing this film. I mean, one of the things I love about Jerry Maguire and, you know, again, in comparison to my films, I haven't pulled this off, is it's a really great love story, but they managed to have another whole film. <laughs> You've got this whole amazing film about um, Tom Cruise's career and... American football and failure and setting up your own business and yet still he sneaks in one of the great 
romantic love stories of all time. And I, I think I'm right in saying it's Secret Garden, isn't it, when they go outside her house and, you know, suddenly you get Bruce Springsteen there and all the gentleness of it. I, I You know, music cues, I don't think they're a cheat completely, even though they're a bit of a cheat, only because they're an amazing resource and a gift to the audience and I love pop music more than I love movies and this that moment in Jerry Maguire is one of the moments again where I feel that thing where I think what was it like walking back home after a you know meeting someone that you thought oh god this is going to transform my life in a good or a bad way and you get that for three minutes in the middle of Jerry Maguire. It does also have the greatest, you know, uh, end scene um, of, of of a romantic film. See, it's not really a romantic comedy, Jerry Maguire, is it? It's a sort of romantic action. Have I picked any romantic comedies? Well, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? What there are there there are so many different aspects to romance films, and you can have. I think Jerry Maguire is funny. And it is romantic, but it's not necessarily a romantic comedy. Yeah, exactly. So when, when I'm asked to talk about romantic comedies, I, I think movies about love with some jokes in them is how I would do that. And I think the moment you get into the sort of um, formulaic thing, you can stumble badly. So, yeah, Jerry Maguire's a sort of action, comedy, romantic relationship sports movie. Yeah, I had to do a whole piece about Jerry Maguire for the NFL, the American Football League, you know, because it was a sports movie yes. for them. So it it has lots of different um, sides to it. I, I like to think of Cameron Crowe because he is famously a, a rock journalist as well as a filmmaker, yeah. just kind of flipping through his record collection when he's, you know, editing his film and working out what would go nicely where. Is that the same thing for you? I have a, I have a flipping memory. <laughs> Which is, when I was writing The Boat That Rock, I finally had to think, as the boat sinks, what record should Phil Seymour Hoffman play? And I thought, oh, fuck, this is going to take... This is going to take a year. And so I started at A. And I thought, what happens if the song is going to be Ghost Town by the Specials, as it were? What happens if it's right down that end? And about the sixth record I got to was the Beach Boys. And I think I went for uh, Wouldn't It Be Nice. So, yeah, sometimes I've done some record collection flicking, even though often it works the other way around, that as I'm thinking about a film for the first time, a song will come in my mind. Like in About Time, there's a song called Gold in Them Hills by Ron Sexsmith. Uh, And in some ways you build the film about that song rather than trying to find a song that suits the film. Tom Cruise and Renee Zellweger, of course, uh, the, the leads in Jerry Maguire. Is it down to casting where you find that, that chemistry that's, that your lead couple have? Is that something you do with your casting director or is it something that happens when you're actually filming? But I was at a production company the other day and saw this new thing, which I'd certainly have never done and didn't know about, that when they're thinking of casting people, they do an edit where they find bits of one person's films 
and intercut them with lines from the other person's films so they can sort of watch the two of them together in a scene even though they've not been in a scene. That seems quite mechanical. I like to think yeah, yeah, that there's yeah, something no, more it, magical it about I mean, that. It, the, the funny thing is the chemistry is the thing that matters enormously, although I think the integrity of the individual performances in a way matters more, you know, and it's funny. I mean, I've never thought about whether we've done, as it were, chemistry casting because I, I'm, I'm not sure that isn't a luxury and that when you're trying to cast apart perfectly, it's hard enough doing that without then saying we found the perfect person, now let's reject them because they don't go with the other perfect person that we found. Um, you know, when we were casting Four Weddings, we saw 72 people and Hugh was the only one who can do it. So, you know, and once you'd got, I mean, when I was casting Julia, you know, there were only two people in the world we really wanted to do that that role. So I think I'm, I've done not as much chemistry casting as getting the two right people. And then I think if you get completely the two right people and the script is right, it should follow that their chemistry will be right because that's what the script is. Hugh seems to have chemistry with everyone. I mean, he has chemistry with Paddington. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that, that seems to me as a movie fan and not knowing him, you know, that's one of his major strengths is that he can charm on the screen with other people. By the way, I was looking at a rather sort of, what I would call a rather intellectual movie website the other day, picking the 100 greatest films of the 2000s. They were all the top ten were in, you know, French, except Paddington Two, which was number seven. <laughs> That's quite interesting, isn't it? I, you know, I, I don't think I could disagree with that. I think it's wonderful. Yeah, like a real proper sort of Wes Anderson style comedy masterpiece. Interesting that. Um, yeah, Hugh has a charm, and by the way, you know, charm is quite relevant to chemistry in movies like that because. A person who's got charm is a person who can get on with everybody. And Hugh has great charm. And therefore, in the movie senses, uh, he kind of seduces all other characters by being delightful about them. Right, let's move on to your final film uh, from 1984. And again, a different kind of love. I guess, <laughs> I guess we'd call this one a bromance. Uh, this is Spinal Tap. Ah, yes. Spinal Tap. Imagine a film being the greatest comedy of all time and the greatest romance of all time. Uh, look, in a way, in a way, this is a joke, but I think I, it just suddenly occurred to me, Spinal Tap, greatest comedy of all time, that it had the structures that, you know, I've been accused of putting into my romantic films. You get two people who, you know, are together... Then they bring in the, the blonde girl who breaks them apart again. And then they try and make it on their own. And then at the end, they come back together again in a moment of ecstasy. And I just think that that final moment when, you know, one of them, Tufnell, walks back on stage in Japan and starts to play Big Bottom Girl or whatever it is that he plays is so gorgeous. And I do think that 
friendship has been the second subject that I've written about all my career. And where does friendship fit into love? You know, that's a really interesting thought because you do often say, I really love you to your friends. And they support you and they bring you joy and everything like that. So, you know, I think that if we talk about, as we have, about sort of love failing, love succeeding, parents, children, friends is the other thing, which is an expression of love in the movies. But all I'd say on Spinal Tap is look at it again sometime, always worth it for an excuse, and see how it is a perfectly structured romantic comedy it's, with no sex. It really set. hasn't changed at all. No. You see, this, that was my window. And the one just to the left, David's, yeah. So I, I wanted to talk to him. I'd reach out the window with the bent-up coat hanger, sort of like, tap the window like this. And I'd lift out the window and say, what do you want? I'd say, I don't know, what are you doing? He'd say, nothing. You know, we go do it together, you know. And in terms of the quotable lines in Spinal Tap, obviously it's absolutely full of them. Do you, can you ever predict what lines are going to be the ones that everyone remembers? You've had a few of them. Well, that's funny because, you know, I think the most famous line I wrote was the line where Julia said, um, you know, I'm just a girl standing in front of a boy. And if you watch the film, I must have known it because in the next scene, Hugh's sitting with his friends and they say, what did she say? And he says, she said, I'm just a girl standing in front of a boy. So I obviously thought it was a good line, that so much so that I repeated it five minutes later. But on the whole, in comedy, you don't know. You know, you're not sure what the absolute killers are. When I used to write Blackadder, I used to underline things that actually made me laugh when I wrote them. And sometimes when I passed it over to Ben, who I was co-writing with, I would forget to delete those underlines. And he asked me right at the end of the process, what were those underlined things? So he obviously never realised they were especially funny. No, I mean, look, you just write a lot of jokes and hope that some of them hit. But whatever happened, it's a bit like Brief Encounter Spinal Tap, whatever happened in that magical three months, you know, no one will ever know. It's like a great album where suddenly a band who never make another one make a masterpiece, even though those guys did make a lot of really, really great films. Spinal Tap, if I tried, I think you and I could probably rewrite the film and get it word perfect because we'd slowly remember every single bit of it. And only 82 minutes long as well. I know you've, you've expressed an interest in writing shorter films, haven't you? Oh, yeah. I mean, look, that is one of the... Those, this is off subject, but Rob Reiner in his prime, wait a second, you know, what did he do? He did A Few Good Men, one of the great courtroom thrillers of all time, Princess Bride, the greatest romantic fantasy, When Harry Met Sally, the greatest romantic comedy, and Spinal Tap, the greatest comedy film. This is a guy, this was the greatest, for me, the greatest prime of anyone, except there is a guy called Michael Curtis who made Ventures of Robin Hood, my favourite sort of old thriller, Mildred Pierce, favourite melodrama, White Christmas, favourite musical, Casablanca, 
greatest romantic films. So Michael Curtis and Rob Reiner, they're the two for me. And finally, if audiences were to take away one lesson, I guess, from the films you write about love, what, what would you like them to, to take away? Well, don't trust Hugh Grant. That's obviously one of the big ones. <laughs> uh, you'll be in all sorts of trouble. God. Um, I don't think there's a lesson in it. But, you know, in life, I would say, I keep thinking, you know, enjoy it while you can. Um, I keep thinking, don't be embarrassed about, you know, love or grief, because I think it is such... I, I often think before I met Emma and settled down, I wish that I'd been... I dove in more when I had other girlfriends that I'd realized what a lucky and wonderful thing it was to find someone even for a while who you who elevated life that strange sense that you get you know of walking on air which is so perfectly expressed in that scene from 500 days of summer so when you feel it coming at you enjoy it while you can I feel my love for you coming at me here I'm going to enjoy oh it while God. I can in the last minute and a half. <laughs> Just, I can feel it coming down the Suffolk coast. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. You're so welcome. It's lovely to talk, you know, it's just so strange, as I was saying at the beginning. So you could spend your whole life writing and never really analysing why you do it or what you think of romantic yeah. films or what you think they're for. Um, yeah. But anyway, I hope that if anybody listens to this and sees any of those movies that they enjoy them thanks for listening now if you got lost in this episode let us know at view entertainment on all the usual social platforms the hashtag is get lost in great stories and don't forget immersing ourselves in great film at the cinema isn't just fun research shows it's actually good for our well-being too so view has partnered with medi cinema MediCinema build and run cinemas in hospitals to help improve the lives of patients. If you'd like to find out more or support their incredible work, head over to the podcast show notes for further details. Until next week, it's goodbye for now from me, James King, and all at View Entertainment. View Entertainment.